So good evening. How's my voice in the back? Good. A little more? Okay. Great. Great. So I'll try to look out just in case things shift and you're in need for me to get the volume up. Good evening to everyone. I want to start by saying that it's been such a privilege to bear witness to many of you this week uh, in your practice and your goodwill to uh, keep returning and showing up for yourself in these beautiful ways. Uh, It's no small thing that we're doing here together, so... I'm appreciating that uh, you're here and that we're kind of cooking this soup that uh, we all bring a particular spice to together. So deep gratitude to you and your practice. Um, Tonight I'd like to share some reflections on metta. And it's the perfect time to do that in a way because through, through this past week in particular, we've been working with this beautiful metta sutta, chanting in the evening. And we've been um, practicing, opening our hearts through metta practice throughout the week, loving kindness. And last night, uh, Philip offered a beautiful structure, what I consider to be the bones of the practice in a way, the satipatthana being a beautiful structure of this kind of establishment of attention, of of mindful attention to these four um, components like stepping stones so we get a chance to see the bones of the practice through that display And what I consider metta to be is the cartilage that's in between the bone that provides a certain softening that supports how what arises is held. Um, So it's like the two wings of the practice. There's wisdom and there's compassion. And so tonight I'd like to just share a bit more of how this uh, practice really holds us this metta practice can really support our heart in dancing and integrating and really having an intimate experience with the structure of this practice, with these wisdom teachings. Um, so I have some thoughts to share. So uh, we've, we've heard throughout the week that many examples of what metta is and it's um, one of four forms of love that the Buddha talked about. I mean one definition is that I ran across in addition to loving kindness and friendliness is fat with friendliness. So I had to think about that a little bit. It's like wait a minute, you know. But uh, the idea of being fat with friendliness, this sense of expanse and 
uh, embodied and infused with this sense of friendliness that has radiance and, um, and has uh, impact, creates waves, if you will, in the world. The Buddha describes these four Brahmaviharas of, of metta, loving kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, and upaka, equanimity, as divine abodes, divine mind states, dwelling places, places where you can uh, relax and be uh, nourished and opened. So it's very beautiful the way um, these practices support a deepening and more intimate uh, inquiry and sense of peace and ease. So the Buddha taught from this place of um, um, loving kindness and the, the, in the sutta we've been chanting in the evening The teachings describe the state of mind of one who has attained unconditional friendliness towards self and others. So that chant is about, you know, how we get that rhythm and experience um, um, activated to some degree inside our hearts and mind. The Sutta begins with, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. So this is an example of what it can be like when one is full um, or really enjoying the benefits of this practice in a full and growing way. We've been growing the heart in this way, opening to its very nature. The Buddha says that the willingness to train our heart is the highest devotion. The willingness to train our hearts is the highest devotion. And I like that phrase a lot. I think uh, another thing that's taught in the teachings is how the heart and the mind are one and the same. That there's no separation in those two expressions in Pali language. And Sri Nasagadatta Maharaji, an Indian guru of non-dualism, says that the mind creates the abyss, the heart crosses it. So it's the same kind of idea that there's just this oneness when we're talking about, or this non-duality around heart and mind. It's the same. So metta's been a big part of my life. I grew up um, and earned pretty early in my life a PhD in rage and anger. I really was quite good at it. I, I actually had a profession that reinforced the arrogance and the righteousness of it. I was doing executive coaching and organizational development, so I had this ability to come in and tell people what was wrong and... I was paid really well to, be, to, to exercise my anger about just how screwed up I thought the system was. 
So I was paid well for it, so I had no reason to let go of it because it actually worked for me. I was so righteous. I was so right. I was dead right. I was dead right. Dead right in my work. Dead right in my relationships. I was dead right, and I really looked good in it. I had the right outfits and, you know. <laughs> I had big hair back then, you know. You know, it fit me real well. It was the way I rolled, you know. And um, this years of conditioning really crippled and uh, cramped and shrink-wrapped and ziplocked my capacity to connect. And at some point, it was, it was not so easy to hold the righteousness because it was working so against what I kind of knew I wanted. And at the age of 27, I had open-heart surgery. I had a mitral valve prolapse, a congenital um, uh, disease around, you know, with the heart. And they went in to um, repair the mitral, to, to replace the mitral valve, but when they got in, they were able to uh, repair it. And it was an interesting symbol for me in my life because even though it was a procedure for opening your heart, um, those white doctors that had, were having more access to my heart than I was in the moment. <laughs> and it was something really wrong with this picture where... I had to trust very deeply that I could actually live through this. But what I realized in the recovery, which was my first silent retreat, (laughs) one of those moments where I was really left with myself in a deep way, I started having some questions. It was almost as if Tina Turner visited me and said, what's love got to do with it? What good is a heart if a heart can be broken? You know? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and what I realized in that recovery was what a drought I had been living with metta. What a drought. What a, what a shutdown of something so essential to our humanness. I literally thought I could do without it. I had literally lived my life in my mind as if it was something that just got in the way of things. So the heart surgery really was a beginning. It didn't have, you know, I didn't quite wake up right then. It took a little while. But it was a real, um, it was a real moment moving from being the, the weight of what was carried inside the heart to the weight, I don't know if any of you have had major surgery, but the most startling thing was the weight of the incision and the pressure that's on the chest. That, that's what I remember when I first, first woke up. It was as if the weight of my life that had been buried inside was now sitting on top of the chest. And there was no way for me to just kind of get away from it. And so it was a beginning of a 
profound thawing out of experience, of beliefs, of stories that no longer served me. Coming, you know, it wasn't exactly a coming to Jesus, but it was a coming toward the Buddha kind of experience. (laughs) So in a lot of ways, I was beginning to realize, you know, in retrospect, what a false refuge it was to be so righteous. To, uh, and, and I was beginning to see that it covered so many, so much scar tissue from the life I had been living, the, the, the struggles, the, the um, suffering prior to that point, and even inheritantly. And I was beginning to, you know, and it was also the time of, of, of all that uh, Barry Gordy great music out there, uh, you know, what do you call it? The, so, the, you know, the, what was it? The Motown music, yeah. Where all the songs are, ooh, baby, I love you, I can't live without you. You know, this is conditioning that happens in our mind around what love is. And so we find ourselves in these situations where we think it's part of a deal we make with the people we love, with the people we know, with what we think we want. So our our conditioning around love and kindness has, uh, we make deals with it. And that's also a way that we cripple ourselves. And I was beginning to ask the question, so there must be a way for my head and my habits to stop killing my heart. There's got to be some way that, that this comes together. I wasn't sure what it was. And in 1990, um, 15 years after my heart surgery, I kind of bumped into the Dharma. I remember it vividly because I, it was here at Spirit Rock when I came to my first talk, uh, Meta Talk. Jack gave this talk down in the lower hall. It was a Monday night. A sister friend, Sangha sibling, uh, Dr. Um, Marlene's, Marlene Jones Schoonover said, come go here with me. We met in China, and she said, do you meditate? And I said, well, not exactly. And she said, where do you live? I said, who is this woman all in my face? (laughs) I said, I live in the Bay Area. She said, so do I. You know, do you meditate? And I said, well, not kind of. She says, well, you come to Spirit Rock. I need you there. I said, okay. She wasn't somebody you said no to, so she brought me here on a Monday night, and um, I heard Jack talking about metta, and it was one of those moments where I felt like, okay, so there could be, there could be a way that I can kind of soften, soften here, just maybe, especially with this business about knowing for yourself. That that was a deep gravitational pull for me a practice of heart where I know for myself. And so that was the beginning a long time ago. I've come to know metta as the anticoagulant that I used <laughs> after my heart surgery. This is kind of like the replacement. It's a practice that allows more flow of life force in your life. So it was beautiful 
I got a sense that I might be able to make some changes on my own terms through a practice um, of direct knowing. That was important for me. So since that time I've come to know metta as not something that's really strong in some kind of egoic kind of kindness, as we've talked about, where anytime you try to grip and hold on to something or someone, um, you know, it's kind of working against this flow. And it's not about indulgence of any kind, you know, like, like having a good feeling and then wanting more and more and more of it. Uh, in fact, I consider it to be a profound um, form of radical acceptance where you are maintaining your seat and uh, allowing your, uh, what arises to be welcomed in an atmosphere of non-resistance. And um, this is a practice. It's not something we know how to automatically do. It's something, but it's something we're opening to that we can uh, actually recognize pretty immediately. It's not something that's foreign, but something that's deeply known. So it's a liberating practice, this metta. It's it's a, a selfless kind of love and friendliness. It's an experience uh, often, I find, where uh, you can experience the lightness from being um, not weighted down by our conditions, our beliefs. So it's a vast um, experience of, um, of release and in many ways uh, a very important form of healing that we can um, dwell in within ourselves. Choyan Trumpa Rinpoche talks about the soft spot, the soft spot of our humanity, and he says that the soft spot is the weak link and the hard boundary of the ego structure. So I got in touch with my soft spot again when I shaved my head. You know that place right in there where it's just really soft. Thinking of my grandbabies when they were born and I could just go in there and touch that little tender spot. This tenderness is something we can't help, we can't help but be touched by this tenderness in our lives. You know, like I was moving around trying to act like, was it the Tin Man in, the, in that story where I need to see the Wizard of Oz because I need a heart? You know, <laughs> you know many of us move, move around like that. So this practice opens us to our humanity, our tenderness, our innate capacity to uh, be wide open and free. So metta is the antidote to aversion and ill will and anger. So it was a great practice for me on many levels. 
in many ways I see it as a practice that's about, uh, it's like atmosphere. We're cultivating a certain atmosphere. It's like adjusting the climate by setting the thermostat to kindness and warmth. In our practice, we're kind of finding that right temperature that allows us to be at ease. I've experienced it as a breezeway at times, um, like a, a brush of fresh air. I've experienced it as an infusion of warmth that uh, moves through the body and beyond the body. You're ta- tapping into a larger field of spacious vastness, radiance, as Venerable Analio talks about it being the radiance of the high noon sun where everything is touched, everything is, um, can't be denied. It's, it's not conditioned. Everybody, uh, everything is in its range. So when we do this practice, we're readying the mind to Again, accept what arises in this field of kindness. It's as if the body becomes this one big uh, vessel for this experience. And it's also a concentration practice. I know that's been said a couple of times this week. A concentration practice uh, where we gather the mind and focus the mind and steady the mind through the phrases, by returning to the phrases. And kind of staying here with uh, this practice. becomes an anchor and a pointer, and it's not so much the phrases that's important, but it's what they open us to. It's the experience, it's the fragrance behind the... Uh, phrases that we're opening to. And it's also a purification process. And, um, you know, when I say a purification process, I'm not saying that we're trying to get rid of something and I'll take six of these things because they feel good, but I want to get rid of this over here. We're not changing the thing that arises we're holding it and offering uh, um, well wishes towards it. And this, as you know, applies to ourselves. My partner has uh, rheumatoid arthritis and they go in to have these infusions. And sometimes I and, and, and what, what it does is it makes sure the, the, you know, the, the, the inflammation in the body and the pain in the body is not as acute. And the joints in the body are not crippling, you know, and continuing to attack the body. And I see metta that way. I see it as a practice that infuses us with the uh, medicine, if you will, that supports the hardening of our lives and um, it provides a certain 
reduction of inflammation or uh, tension that we walk with. It can hold that arising. In metta practice, uh, also as a purification practice, we're freeing ourselves by loving ourselves. And there's a certain kind of surprise that we can have sometimes in practice where we're transmuting, we're burning karmic, um, you know, just patterns and seeds. When Anushka was offering the metta, I believe it was yesterday, this was a flower offering of the metta I sat in. And uh, when we got to the part in the practice where the... uh, she said, you know, you can open the door and just see who comes in, you know. So my mother came in. She's been, uh, it's been about 18 months since she passed away. And I come from a large family. Of, there were eight of us, and I was number five in six in a row. So I never got my favorite piece of the chicken. That's all I want to say about that. You know? <laughs> I had to wait. Well, the oldest ones, you know, so I never got my piece of the chicken. Another, another dynamic in the house was, you know, whoever screamed the loudest or was in the most trouble got all the attention. And that wasn't me. I was always the good girl. I was trying to be the good girl. So I lived a, a lot of my life kind of angst that I didn't get her attention as much as I wanted. So she shows up in the, in the metta. Wanting her flowers, you know, sitting like this. <laughs> I picked all the bird of paradise because I knew they couldn't belong to anybody but her. <laughs> Offered her the flowers. And she said to me, she said, thank you for not being a burden. And I never quite held it that way. You know how we can be so preoccupied with what we want, what we're trying to get that we don't think about. She said, thank you for not being a burden. And then she just kind of took her flowers and left. (laughs) (laughs) So you never know, you know, I mean, when you open to, to your heart, you open to... Um, you rest in the awareness, you rest in an atmosphere of friendliness and kindness. Um, what needs to be transmuted or the karmic heartburn has a chance to um, be aired out in this atmosphere. You can't make this happen. I, I didn't make my mother show up. You know, you open, you create the conditions so that whatever arises can be seen and held in kindness. And sometimes, you know, you get surprises like this. It was very lovely. So by devoting ourselves to kindness, we are creating these conditions to to be able to dwell in this heart, body, and mind. I was reading Joseph Goldstein's book on mindfulness and there was a piece in it that really struck me that's related to metta. He, he had a quote in there by Arthur Miller and it was from a playwright called um, After the Fall. And it, 
this piece is called Take One's Life in One's Arms. So I'll read it to you because it might be familiar to how your practice has been this week and especially to metta. I think it's a mistake to ever look for hope outside of oneself. One day the house smells of fresh bread, the next of smoke and blood. One day you faint because the gardener cuts his finger. Within a week you're climbing over corpse of children bombed in subways. What What hope can there be if this is so? I tried to die near the end of the war. The same dream returned each night until I dared not go to sleep and I became quite ill. I dreamt I had a child and even in the dream I saw it was my life. And it was an idiot and I ran away. But it always crept over my lap again, clutched at my clothes until I thought, if I could kiss it, whatever in it was my own, Perhaps I could sleep. And I bent to its broken face, and it was horrible. But I kissed it. I think one must finally take one's life into one's arms. This is Arthur Miller. So what is arising in your practice that you must befriend that you must take into your own arms and kiss. The kiss of metta, of kindness. So, um, I can remember being on a long retreat here at Spirit Rock once, and I sat over in this corner, actually, and I remember I was sitting by, it, it, you, you remember that transi- transition exercise we did, and somebody, uh, this guy next to me, uh, was a great big guy, you know, he introduced himself, he was here f- from Germany practicing for two months, I was here for a month, and uh, he sat right next to me, and what I noticed over the course of weeks is that he spread out, everywhere and you know his pillows when he got up spread all over in my space and and, uh, he you know he just I just and and, you know Choi and Trump Rinpoche says we're architects of space so we create elaborate things in our minds so I had a, a major rage story going on for weeks at this retreat you know really resentful, you know, all these white people always take up space. I mean, you know, I had a whole list of questions, all, you know, Germany. I mean, I just went, it was nuts. <laughs> I didn't know this person, but I, I knew my story and I was sticking to it. And it was just on and on and on. And then he walked too loud. And I mean, it was just, he was the hindrance of all time for me. <laughs> And I was getting great support from the teachers, all of which I ignored and came back and, you know. (laughs) So, 
But the point of the story is at the end of the month, I had gotten a little okay with this at some point, I can't tell you when. It might have been a few retreats later, but anyway. <laughs> at the transition meeting at the end, uh, we were sitting in the cafeteria. He came and sat right before me, and I couldn't believe it. I said, I cannot believe. Is he going to go home with me? Am I going to have to? <laughs> he sat right across from me. We were still in silence. And I looked up at him. He had these the most gentlest, loving eyes looking right at me with tears rolling down. And it was his way of saying goodbye to me because he knew I was leaving the retreat. And I'll never forget how struck I was with his humanness and all the layers I had added on top of that. You know, well, you know we do this, right? But it was his, um, it was, a, it was, connecting with him, seeing his humanity that shifted inside of me that made the shift. It was a deeper kind of metta than me sitting and doing the practices. It was a, it was a transmission just in his, in his radiance and love towards me that I had literally turned my attention to. And despite my, oh, what is this going to be? Is he going to, you know, I was able to... Um, experience his heart. It's so good not to believe your thoughts. <laughs> the practice itself, as you've been practicing during the week, is it's simple, but it's not always so easy. You know, and there are many ways to practice. It's simple because, uh, especially in this, in our tradition, the Theravada tradition, there's these four simple phrases. May I be safe, and may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I live with ease. You know, some variation of that. So it's simple. But it's not so easy because we don't always feel that way. We don't always feel loving kindness. But the phrases is not what's important, as said before. What's important is when the heart lets go. It's when that little sliver of release occurs. And it's enough of a release, enough electricity there that it sits you upright, wakes you up, slaps you out of your delusion into your humanity. It's that little sliver that actually has momentum, that accumulative impact through the practice. And the more we fixate on the object of our distraction, the hindrance that might be visiting in the moment, the more we lock in, zoom in on that, uh, we lose perspective of the space that's around it, the capacity we have to see clearly when we zoom out. It's when we zoom out that we can entertain something other than our fixation. And when our practice is too difficult, too much of a struggle, when you find you're zoomed in so tightly, and there are times like that, 
sometimes long times like that. For me, it was up till I was 27 years old. You know, some people live their life in this zoomed-in way, a.k.a. suffering. We could also offer metta to ourselves for not being able to ungrip ourselves, so we can offer metta. May I be kind to myself in this moment of suffering, this moment of lockdown. Can I offer metta to that reality, that arising? So there's a few things to remember in this practice, I think, that I've found helpful. Um, it's useful to start by remembering your, it's how we've been practicing this week, to remember your, your basic goodness, your good heart, your, 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 your goodness. It's good to start there with a felt sense of that. Sometimes that's really hard for people, so it's useful to reflect on a moment in time where you really felt like your heart was pierced open. It could have been a glance or a slow dance or a sound. Or it could be a moment of gratitude that really, uh, you know, something you're really grateful for. I was walking around and just really appreciating how beautiful it is in the Bay Area and trying to figure out how my partner talked me out of moving. But that's another Dharma talk. (laughs) So beautiful here. Just You can feel the expanse. You can surrender into it. These are moments of metta. And it's also ways we can see the dance between metta and dana, generosity. So much love coming at us in so many different ways. When you offer the phrases, uh, know that you're talking to your body and mind. You're actually um, teaching yourself how to live in your heart through these phrases. It's useful to use the entire body when you're offering metta not just your mouth. And allow your your entire body to be the offering of metta. And it's not the phrases again, it's the intention that mobilizes them. It's the goodwill that infuses the phrases. So your intention is important when you sit with this practice. It's not just about... uh, oh, I'm going to do meta practice, but I'm, I'm coming to cultivate my heart so that I can practice with ease. It's also useful to pause often and experience the spaces in between and through the phrases when you're offering them. And to notice how you are impacted by the phrases, one of the things I find is that the hard edges tend to soften. When I can relax my awareness in the practice of metta. 
there's also um, a certain contagion that can happen in our lives, you know, with metta. You know, there's a radiance to metta. The Buddha says in the sutta we've been reading, been chanting each night, that radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the sky and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. So my partner and I were in Italy and we were headed back to the hotel and we're rushing. It was just about to turn dark and so we were rushing to catch the last, you know, not the last boat, but the next to the last boat that went back to the hotel. So it was right around the time in the square where they were setting up all these cafes and the musicians were coming out to, to play music and everything. And so we missed the boat. And then I got a chance, we got a chance to go back to that little cafe I had my eye on and sitting outside and it was a beautiful evening. And so uh, we sat here and the servers came and then the, the place was starting to crowd up, crowd to crowd. And a couple breezed by, and uh, they stopped right just short of our table and was talking to the two guys sitting to the table on the right. And, uh, and the guy sits, was sniffing, and he said, What is that? I smell a cigar. And the guy's sitting here saying, Yeah, this... Where did you get that? I've been looking for a cigar. And the guy said, oh, I brought it with me. And they talked about the box. And, and they went back and forth. And the, so the guys finally said, well, here, have, please take one. And he said, oh, no, I can't. And he said, oh, yes, you must. And oh, no, I can't take the cigar. And oh, you must. And everybody's saying, take the cigar. <laughs> take it. I'm going to take it. Take it. So he finally took the cigar. Oh, thank you. Oh, no, thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, oh, this went on, this went on. This was so glorious. It was just filling up all the space, right? So then they went to get a table, but before they sat down, they went to the waiter and ordered him a cup of tea, and then he made sure there was a flower on the tray and went with the waiter to deliver the tea to the guys sitting and, oh, thank you once again. Oh, yes, no, no, take another cigar. Oh, no, don't give him another cigar. So, you know, and then it was like, oh, please enjoy this. Oh, please enjoy this. Oh, I will enjoy this. This went on. And so the couple finally went and had a seat with the cigar. And we looked over at them. This was this nice open breezeway. This is not an advertisement for cigars. But I looked over at the couple, and they were delighting in passing the cigar back to each other. And they had these big smiles on their faces. If this was a ritual that had been delayed because they, they couldn't find cigars. And, and anyway. But the contagion, the, con- the, 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 the exchange affected everybody there. The music sound better and the people were moving in slow motion and it was just the the stars were twinkling my partner was saying i'm not feeling any of that but (laughs) 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 this is what happens sometimes you know but (laughs) 
I said, oh my gosh, look at this. Oh, this is just so exquisite, just so beautiful. She said, if we don't get out of here, we're going to miss the next boat, and that'll, that'll be the last boat. But this contagion, when the radiance, I mean, it, it has an effect on everybody, almost everybody that's watching. <laughs> oh, gosh. So... You can open your awareness to this. I was staying at a place here once when I was teaching, right out here in Woodacre, a, a guest in someone's home. And they had spent just, they had the most exquisite flower garden. It was really something to behold. Every area of the yard had been so well intended and attended. It was bursting with love and color, and I could, I could hardly stand to walk through it. It was just so lovely. And sometimes I think we have to develop a tolerance for loveliness, a tolerance for this kind of freedom, this kind of goodness. How much can you take? Sometimes our nervous system is not used to it. It doesn't know what to do when there's just an abundance of it. But try it out, you know, if it's there. So again, it's, uh, as I said in the guided meditation a little earlier this week, this, this practice is like a software, like an app. You're, you're, you're popping it, in, it into the hardware, hardwiring of your conditioning. And there's, it, there's a learning curve with this app. And the learning curve is the practice itself of coming to the practice again and again and again. And what this kind of does, it has this, I think, Philip used the word osmosis, and you know, it's, I call it homeopathic, where a little bit is a lot. And over time, we end up with this remedy of metta, of uh, building faith and confidence and a trust in our capacity to rest in awareness with whatever is arising, without resistance without an edge, without a broken heart. And it's uh, very much like composting, actually. It may seem like you're not doing much, you know, when you throw all the stuff on the heap. But in the heart of the practice, in in the heat of it, you're actually developing very rich soil that can feed and seed kindness in many directions. So let's sit with this for a few minutes.
the willingness to train our hearts is the highest devotion. And this evening, uh, we're going to have a break here for walking meditation. And this evening, Kate will be leading the chant for us this evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.